All right, good morning and welcome to Savior. We're back again looking once more into our series on spiritual warfare, which is uh, the term that we use to talk about our fight against the sinful influence of the flesh and the devil and the world. Now, I want to begin by looking at a moment uh, which is not the passage you've turned to. I asked you to turn to Ezekiel 28, but I want to I direct your attention to the screen real fast. Uh, we're going to look at a, a po- portion of Scripture where the Apostle Paul exhorts a young pastor named Timothy to fight well in the spiritual war, right? So 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this to him. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, uh, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, relevant to our thoughts today uh, from this passage, the Apostle Paul mentions that there is, in fact, a war going on against the enemy, Satan, and we as believers are soldiers in it. And to give up that warfare would be to make shipwreck of our faith and to be handed over to Satan. Now, that, that's a, its own conversation that we'll have a little bit later, but uh, let's just key in on, on this idea of the war and our role as soldiers and, and, uh, and just the, the, the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. See, this word war that we've been using throughout this series and is the title of the series, uh, the idea of war in, in Greek is strategia. Now, we get the word strategy from the same root. Uh, it means to fight as a soldier for a cause, it's not a single battle, it's, it's not a skirmish, uh, it's, it's not a brief fight, it's a long-term continual campaign, and that's precisely what we're involved in. Now, not all wars are noble wars, uh, but here's a noble warfare that the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's a cosmic warfare of massive spiritual proportions that is to be well fought. The spiritual war is not won by exerting extreme amounts of willpower and determination or moral training and conduct. It's won by... Holding faith and good conscience, it means trusting God, loving Jesus, praying for strength with and for the church. Everything that we're, we're talking about in this, this concept of spiritual warfare, it has to come from an understanding that the, uh, that the war itself, of which Paul speaks and of which we've been discussing, this war at its highest level is an invisible conflict between God and Satan, Right, if you, the, the war we talk about, we're engaged in this war, yes. But at its highest level, the primary level of conflict is between God and Satan. Everything else, in a sense, comes under that. It's a war of God and his truth against Satan and his lies. It's between God's holy will and God's, uh, God's agenda and his plan against Satan's hellish objectives and his, uh, his evil and, and wicked uh, goals and plans. And it involves holy angels, and it involves fallen angels, which we call demons. It involves godly men, and it involves sinful men. Uh, the whole concept of the spiritual war, knowing that it's between God and Satan, and it's, it's kind of carried out by, uh, by the people that belong to them, it reminds me of my very favorite movie, Karate Kid 2, which is a movie that it, that's... Uh, about a conflict between two karate masters, and this conflict takes place in Okinawa, and the two masters never actually fight each other. The whole thing is resolved 
among their, their top disciple, their top students. And I, I know you didn't need that illustration to understand the concept. I just wanted to mention Karate Kid too. But it does help understand the idea. It's the idea that there's, that there's a conflict between God and Satan, but they're not actually fighting with each other. They're not actually involved in direct combat. Their disciples are. The ones that follow them are. The holy angels of God and, and, uh, and the believers are on, on, the, on the Lord's side. And then the fallen angels, the demons, and unbelievers, and the whole power of the world is on the devil's side. And that's how the war is fought. Now, originally, it wasn't always like this. Originally, when God created the heavens and the earth, there was no war, right? There, there was no physical war. There was no spiritual war. This war was not always taking place. There was no conflict or fight or rebellion. Everything was peaceful. Everything was harmonious. Everything was perfect. It was all very good. When God created the world, it was very good. In six days, God created everything that we can see in the universe, the heavens and the earth, all of it. He created all of it, as well as uh, everything that we can see on, on this planet, as well as everything we can't see in the un, unseen realms. Not just outer space, but uh, the heavens and the earth. Everything that's physical and, and material and tangible and everything that's ethereal or intangible or incorporeal. And that also means that God created angels at some point during those six days of creation. Right? He created everything in heaven and on earth. And the angels were created sometime during, during that, that six-day period. Now, angels don't die, and angels don't procreate. And so every angel that exists today has been around since the time of Genesis 1. And angels were, uh, were around before any sin was committed. Angels were around before uh, there was the fall of man. Angels were around since before mankind existed. Angels were around before there was ever even a devil. So how did it all go wrong? For all we've covered about our spiritual war, we know it began at the highest level, which is God and Satan. And that cosmic conflict is being resolved between Satan's disciples and God's disciples, between Satan's followers and God's followers. So we've explained exhaustively on this. We've, we've taken a number of weeks, uh, more weeks than we probably expected to take. But we've explained exhaustively on the fact that every believer is involved in a spiritual war. We've demonstrated how the Bible clearly asserts the existence of personal creatures, uh, fallen angels, demons, and a personal creature, Satan himself, the leader of the demons. Those aren't attitudes. They're not general ver uh, vices of evil. They are personal creatures, invisible creatures that have personality and intelligence and will, etc. We've taught how fighting that battle can't be done physically or by the power of the flesh or by the power of, uh, of the natural will. It can only be fought by individual prayer, corporate prayer, uh, and trust in God and trust in God's word. And we talked about the objectives of our war, which uh, for us as believers, our objective is to glorify God by carrying out his will. And Satan's objective is to stop us from doing that, to render us ineffective in glorifying God and carrying out his will. And then we covered the various strategies by which Satan attempts to accomplish his objective in stopping us from glorifying God. He, he uses deception to instill doubt. He uses temptation to provoke sin. He uses slander to incite division. He uses accusation to cause despair. He uses control to try to take possession of people. 
And now today we're going to cover, cover a, another aspect of how Satan wars against the followers of Jesus. If you're taking notes, we're going to, we're going to walk in the same three steps that we, uh, we've been trying to do, which is uh, first we're going to make a, a remark about Satan. We're going to talk about Satan as the adversary and enemy of God. Satan as the adversary and enemy of God. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. Then we're going to talk about how this affects us. And then, for like the last three minutes, we'll talk about how do we stand. Right? We'll spend the most time on, uh, on this first idea, Satan as the adversary and enemy of God. Now, Satan is, is really just a title. When we say Satan, we, we think of it as a name, but it's not really a name. It's, it's more a title. It means enemy or it means adversary. That's what it means, if you remember. Uh, that's, that's kind of become his proper name because we need something to call him. He's the adversary or enemy of God, and we see that depicted in, in his invisible war against God and God's holy angels. Uh, good uh, place to see kind of how he's an enemy of God is demonstrated in Revelation 12. And I'll just show you in verse 7 uh, that, that Satan, in the form of a dragon, if you read the, that passage, uh, it says, uh, Now war arose in, in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, that would be Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So there's, there's the war going on. That's where Satan is the enemy of God. There are holy angels fighting against fallen angels. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's not just going to happen. This, this warfare is not just going to be in the invisible realm. Uh, right now it is. But in the end times, Satan will gather the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth. He'll gather them together along with his demon armies, and they'll kind of Combined forces, he'll assemble for actual physical war with Jesus when Jesus physically returns. So right now, it's an unseen battle. Right now, it's an invisible war. But in the end times, there's going to be a, a moment where he gathers his forces and, and they, they go to war. It happens at Mount Megiddo or Har Megiddo, which is where we get the word Armageddon. You see it in Revelation 16. Verse 13, it says, uh, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 16 says, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's how it, it, it ends up you know, turning out for the, the world as the history of the world is coming to an end. Satan, especially in the New Testament, is given many names. He's called the adversary, uh, a different word for adversary, but he's, he's called an adversary. He's called the accuser of, our, of the brethren. He's called Be- uh, Beelzebub, Belial, the deceiver of the whole world, the devil, the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies, the god of this world, the great red dragon, a liar, a murderer, the prince of demons, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the ancient serpent, and the tempter, among a few other titles. But all of these, these names, all these titles came from somewhere. He had a beginning. I mean, how do you build a reputation like that? How do you accrue that kind of a standing where you have that many titles, that many different ranks and positions? He had a beginning that turned him into all these things. And we find that in Ezekiel 28. The prophet Ezekiel, in this chapter, is going to give an indictment to to the king of a city called Tyre. And God is angry at the king of Tyre. And so he he sends the prophet Ezekiel to go and, uh, and speak judgment at him. It turns out that the king of Tyre is a regular, sinful person in the world, just like you, just like me, 
you know, that's, that's how he started out. So we started out, and that's how he is. He was a, an unbeliever. He remained an unbeliever, and he was wicked. He was part of the world. And you, you remember who owns the world, right? Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. He's the god of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this world. Now, the king of Tyre was a pawn in the activity of Satan. Satan used the king to do whatever Satan wanted. That's, that's what he did. That's exactly the picture we get in the book of Daniel, that the godless nations of the world are run by Satan and his demons. Right? The godless nations of the world are run by Satan and his demons. That's something that, that's hard to grasp. It's something that we can probably stow away as a fact in our mind, but hard to understand how that works, and yet that's how it works. Well, it's the same situation here. Here's the king of Tyre. He's an unbeliever, and his, his nation is a godless nation, and it's run by Satan and demons. In uh, Ezekiel 28, verse 2, he's called the prince of Tyre. And if you remember, prince is just a general term for ruler. It's just a, a generic term for ruler, any kind of ruler. You, you can call him a prince. And it's, it's normal to use the term prince even for a king. It's not a strong word. It's kind of a, a, a dull word to use as a ruler. Well, let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28. We'll start in verse 1 and go for about 10 verses. This is what it says. The word of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, uh, that's, that's Yahweh. The word of Yahweh came to me, says Ezekiel. Verse 2. Son of man, and that's God uh, referring to Ezekiel. That's a title that he he refers uh, to Ezekiel with. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. Now that was God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel to a king who had clearly overstepped his boundaries and done wickedness when he should have ruled with godliness. If you read it, you can undoubtedly see the king's error, the king's sinfulness, the king's consequence. You can see all that kind of just laid out in front of you. That God is unhappy with this man, and he's saying that you, king of of Tyre, uh, you have called yourself a god. You're, You're claiming to be one, and I will lay you low. I will bring you down. I'll cut you down to size, and you will see that you are being slain. But now... After 10 verses of, of seeing God's anger against this man, which very clearly is a man who is arrogant and, and wicked, uh, after seeing God's indictment on this man, God sends Ezekiel again to speak to the same guy, the king of Tyre, except it's going to be a little bit different this time. In verse 12, God is going to tell Ezekiel to address the, quote, king, not the, not the prince of Tyre, 
But now he's going to upgrade it to the stronger term. He's going to say the king of Tyre. He doesn't say prince. He says king. It's referring to the same person. It's using a stronger term. And then what's weird about this is the whole description that follows is filled with statements that cannot in any way describe the king of Tyre. It's filled with statements that cannot in any way describe a human being. So watch what happens. Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verse, verse 12. It says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 16. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Now, these are not descriptions of a human being. Even uh, if they're a metaphor to describe the king, how, how is this metaphor comparing him? To what is, is, is this metaphor comparing him? What is it trying to say? What is it, what is it trying to say the king of Tyre is like? The description given here about this person or this creature, he was the signet of perfection. When has God ever referred to a believer, uh, excuse me, when has God ever referred to an unbeliever as perfect? When has he ever said that an unbeliever, a sinful human being like you and me, unregenerate, unrepentant, not a worshiper of God, when has he ever said that an unbeliever was perfect? Meaning, when did he say that he was a signet of perfection, sealed with perfection? You seal something when it's, uh, when it's completely done. It's complete, like a letter, an envelope. You seal it after it's done. There's nothing more you can add to it after you've sealed it, right? That's the idea of perfection, that there's nothing more to improve, nothing more to add. And what God says of the, uh, of the person here, he's saying, you were perfect. You were sealed because you were perfect. There was nothing more that needed to be added to you. Nothing more that needed to be improved. Nothing more that needed to be enhanced. Nothing had to change. He was perfect. He was done. He was sealed. He was a signet of perfection. He was perfection in terms of wisdom. He was perfection in terms of beauty. When does God ever say that a sinful unbeliever 
is the perfect picture of wisdom and of beauty. What, what is God's opinion of the wisdom of the world? The wisdom of the world is foolishness to him. The whole description here cannot refer to a human being at all. No human being is perfect. No human being is complete. No human being is perfect in wisdom and beauty. Certainly not a wicked king who doesn't worship the Lord. And then verse 13 kind of gives it away. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were in Eden, the garden of Eden, right? That's where the garden of Eden, uh, that's, that's where the first two human beings to ever exist that's where they were created, Adam and Eve. They were created there. All other human beings were born from, uh, from Adam and Eve. They all came from there, right, from procreation. But, but these two, Adam and Eve, they were, they were created miraculously, instantaneously, spontaneously out of the, out of the earth. God uh, created the man, and then out of his side, he created the woman. And they were in the Garden of Eden, and uh, they are the only human beings to ever be in the Garden of Eden, just so you know. Because they were, they were in the Garden of Eden, and then they fell into sin. And when that happened in Genesis 3, God kicked them out, and he put a guardian cherub there with a flaming sword there. And, uh, and there you have angels protecting the garden. No one can come back in. So no human being besides Adam and Eve were ever in the Garden of Eden. So it's weird that God talks to this king of Tyre, and says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Why would he say that? Is, this, is the king of Tyre Adam? No. Is the king of Tyre Eve? No. So why would God say that? And yet there was one other character that was in the garden of Eden. Except he wasn't a human being. He was a serpent. The serpent, the ancient serpent, is Satan himself. The great red dragon, the tempter, the devil. He was there. He's the one that tempted Eve. Adam and Eve both. Now, this is who these verses are about. See, in in the first ten verses, God sends Ezekiel to, uh, to speak his indictment against the prince of Tyre. Very generic, dull term for ruler. And now, in verses 12 all the way through 19... God is speaking to the king of Tyre, the real power behind it. See, because the prince of Tyre, this this human king, he's just a pawn in the activity of Satan and demons. The real ruler behind Tyre is Satan himself. And this description fits Satan. This is who we're looking at. In verse 13, it says, Every precious stone was your covering. And it lists nine precious stones. Now, those nine precious stones are all stones that God instructed to be placed into a, a, a breastplate in Exodus 39 for the high priest of Israel to wear. They were nine of the 12 stones that were, were there to represent God's matchless value and beauty and glory and majesty. So this, uh, so this description of Satan says that he is like the glory and beauty and, and value and majesty of God. Right? There were 12 stones to display God's matchless beauty. This, this particular creature, Satan, he's, he's adorned with nine of these stones. Right? He's not equal to God, but he does have similarities. There are, there are things that are, that are shared 
Because God has, has allowed beauty and majesty to be given to this creature. Well, they're there. They're given to Satan. The day that Satan was, what it says, is created, not born. Because he wasn't born, he was, he was created. And that's when the stones were prepared for him and given the gold inset and stuff. Verse 14 says he was an anointed guardian cherub. That is the most sacred of all angels, the, the, the cherubim, if you go with the plural, the cherubim that guarded the Ark of the Covenant. See, if you don't know what that is, the Ark of the Covenant was this box that God uh, had built in, in the book of Exodus. He said, build this box, uh, and that is where I'm going to, even though God is omnipresent, that's where I'm going to localize my, my presence. I'm going to manifest there in a very special way. I will be located there. If anyone is seeking to come and meet me, I will be inside the ark. And the, the ark was constructed, and the way that, that it, was, it was built was exactly to God's instructions, which included two golden statues of cherubim on, the, on top of the ark, facing each other with their wings kind of spread out toward each other, and, uh, and, and their tips of the wings coming together. And that right there, between those wings, is the mercy seat. That's where on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest would sprinkle blood and that would, that would accomplish uh, the, the sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of Israel. Meaning, it's right there in, be- in between the, the wings of the guardian cherubim that that's where sins were forgiven in the Old Testament, or at least that's the sign of forgiveness. That's the, that's the act. If ever there was a place that would be the closest preview of the cross of Jesus Christ... It's the mercy seat. It's that spot right between the two guardian cherubim on top of the ark. That's why these are the, uh, the, the two highest ranking types of angels, if you, if you need to organize them in some way. It was, uh, it was the place where God offered salvation to man, and only cherubim could be there. Satan was a cherub. He was a guardian cherub. God says in in verse 14, he says, I placed you. I placed you. I gave you that position as guardian cherub to guard my presence. I placed you. And God placed him on the holy mountain. Right? He placed him on uh, on the holy mountain in the midst of the stones of fire. God placed him in the most central place of service. Satan wasn't on the outside doing delivery work. He was not just a messenger angel or something like that. He was right there in the midst of God's presence. He was there, as we could basically call it, like the, inside the palace, inside the throne room. He was there. And verse 15 says, You were blameless in all your ways, absolute perfection. God is not describing a human being. He's not describing an unbelieving, wicked king. He's describing a creature of incredible splendor and glory. Now, these verses speak about the real power behind the king of Tyre. The, 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 the king was just a ruler, a prince. He was just a regular guy. He was a human being. But the real ruler, the real king, was Satan. Satan and the angels were, were uh, as we said, dis- they were created during the first six days of creation. Satan being an angel and the demons, also they all started off as angels. They were holy. They were good. They were perfect in wisdom and, and, and beauty. And sometime before Genesis 3... Somewhere between their, the moment of their creation and the time of Genesis 3, somewhere during that time is when they fell. 
That's when Satan and, and a third of the angels rebelled against God. Somewhere in that time. We don't know exactly what day they were created. We don't know exactly which day they rebelled. We don't know. But we know that it happened, and we know that it happened somewhere in between that little bracket of time. Now, why? Why did Satan sin? The, the, the answer is pride. I think the, the more specific type of pride would be conceit. Uh, that's, a, that's a type of pride that's always negative, right? Because pride can be a neutral term. It's okay to be proud of your kid when he gets good grades, right? You could, that's okay. That's a good kind of pride. It's okay to be proud to be serving the Lord. That's good. It's never okay to be conceited. You, 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 don't, you don't applaud people for being conceited because uh, the idea of conceit is intended to be negative, right? Conceit is unreasonable pride. It's an, uh, either an unreasonable amount of pride or it's pride in something that's unreasonable. In either case, it's always bad. Conceit is the bad kind of pride. Now, you have to realize, when we ask the question, why did Satan sin, uh, the, our answer being conceit, like, how did that happen? How did that come about? You know, and, and we're really left to just a little bit of speculation based on the, the verses that we have in front of us. Satan didn't have a Bible. You realize this, right? Satan didn't have a Bible. It just wasn't written by the time Genesis 1 was happening, right? He, uh, he, was, he was there in the beginning before literacy. He was, just, he was there. There was no Bible. There was no such thing as history. Satan didn't have warnings. He didn't have stories. He didn't have commandments and instructions about how God was sovereign, how God was, was undefeatable. He didn't have that. Satan just saw that God was beautiful, and then he himself was beautiful. God was wise, and he himself was wise. God was perfect. And he looked at himself, and he said, I also am perfect. And it could have been in his mind that he just thought that they were, they were equals. They were at least close enough. He wouldn't know that God was infinite and he was finite and that there was this endless amount of difference between them. There wouldn't be something that he could figure out. Not at that time. He just, there was no Bible to tell him that. So he could have thought, well, you know, why shouldn't I be God? Right? There's, there's something that took place where he wanted to usurp the place of God. Verse 17 says he was proud because of his beauty, his wisdom corrupted by his splendor. Right? That's exactly it. He fell in love with himself and he said, like, I'm a bigger deal than God is. I, like, I, God is glorious, but I, I'm, I'm just as glorious, if not more. And he attacked God in violence, which is why it, it says in verse 16 that he was filled with violence. He had a third of the angels helping him out, as it tells us in Revelation 12. He tried to kill God. Or whatever he thought he was going to do, you know, uh, displace God, take him captive, whatever it was going to be. And the notion is ridiculous, right? He, if, I, if I said he tried to kill God, you know, that's, a, that's an idea that you'd think is preposterous. Would you ever try that? Of course not, right? The idea sounds stupid. But why does it sound stupid to you? Well, because you have a Bible, because you've heard stories and, you know, you have, the, you have the idea that God is omnipotent, that, you know, that God is sovereign. You have all this stuff, you have all this theology that's given to you. And so the answer was kind of given to you, but Satan didn't have that. He didn't know how omnipotence works. It's never been demonstrated before. He, he isn't omnipresent. He isn't omniscient. He isn't omni-anything. 
God is. God alone is. Satan is not. And Satan and his forces discovered the hard way that God cannot be defeated. God is a matchless king. And so Satan was cast out of God's presence for his conceit. Condemned by God. Struck down from his rank as a guardian cherub. Isaiah 14 gives us another look. And I'll put it up on the board for you. This is a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah against the king of Babylon, right? It's another prophet talking to another king. And eerily enough, he uses descriptions just like Ezekiel did. He he uses descriptions that don't fit a human. In the middle of speaking of the wicked king who was an unbeliever, he segues into describing an angel that has fallen from heaven. Watch what happens in Isaiah 14, verse 12. It says, uh, when he's talking to the king of Babylon, king of Babylon, it, it starts to change it to something else. It says, "How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn! How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low! You who you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high." but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Think about what this says here. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Day star. Uh, You can translate that also as light bringer, son of the morning. Or if you just kind of stick with a little little bit of a a Latin translation, the King James Version does that. And instead of O day star, it says Lucifer. Lucifer. And by that rendering, that's how we got the tradition of referring to Satan by the name Lucifer, even though that's not really necessarily his name. If this day star is Satan, it's it's an interesting mock imitation of Jesus, which Satan oftentimes is. I mean, he began resembling God in beauty and majesty, wisdom and perfection and goodness, all of that. He, he had so much in, uh, similarity to, to God himself, and yet he was just a little bit off. So it's not surprising that he starts off with a, a name like Lucifer or, or, or Daystar, son of the morning or, or light bringer, son of the dawn. Uh, it, it, it's not a, a, a surprise because Jesus himself in Revelation twenty two sixteen is called the bright and morning star. That's the title of Jesus. Jesus is the bright and morning star. Here's the sun of the morning, or the light bringer, day star. This was a glorious creature with a title as close to Jesus as you could get. He was fallen. He was cut down. He was condemned because of his conceit. And if you look at, at what he says, you know, in verse 13 and on, he, he says, I will ascend. I will set my throne. I will sit on the mount. I will ascend above. I will make myself like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He said in his heart five times, I will, in just three verses, all in direct challenge to the power and authority of God. He felt equal to God, he wanted to be like God. Which is, by the way, how he tempted Eve, is it not? Didn't he say, take this fruit, eat this fruit, you'll be like God. He used the same temptation on Eve. And in Romans 1, it says the same thing about how sin erupts in man. 
we replace the glory of the immortal God with the, the glory of creation and ourselves. We replace God with ourselves. Now here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, point out a little translation thing. And, and uh, on, on this point, I don't think I'm being nitpicky. I, I think that this is a legitimate gripe that I have, okay? Uh, verse 14, do you notice it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Uh, and I, I really don't like how it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, plural. It shouldn't be plural. They, uh, the translators have done that maybe because the Greek translation in the Septuagint is plural, but, but originally, Isaiah was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, it's singular. And he, he, he wasn't saying he'd be higher than clouds in the sky. That, that's kind of a stupid thing to say because he's already said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I'll set my throne of God. So he's already talked about how high he's going to go. It's, it's, it's above the stars. So the sky is setting the bar pretty low after you've said, I'm going to be above the stars. Right? So it wouldn't make sense to say, I'm going to be above the stars and I'm going to be above the clouds. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You, have to, you ought to go with the, the singular in the Hebrew because it was originally written in, in Hebrew and it talks about a cloud and it talks about a very specific word on cloud. It's, I will, uh, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud, the cloud, a very specific cloud. Even if you went with the, the plural of the Greek translation, the word nephele, even that word still refers to a very specific type of cloud. It's not the regular cloud in the sky. It's not the cumulonimbus or anything like this, okay? It's not just a regular cloud in the sky. The cloud that's being used the word that's being used for cloud is not a, cl- a cloud of, in the atmosphere. The, the cloud that it's talking about is the cloud described as the glory of God in the Old Testament. It's the glory of God. His glory manifested as a cloud right around the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the tabernacle. It would lead the people of Israel. He'd be a cloud and it'd be his glory. Even then, that, that, that same cloud was, uh, was glowing, and that's what uh, was leading the Magi when they saw this glowing thing in the sky, this austere, this shiny object in the sky. That was this cloud. It was brilliant. There was no other cloud like it. This person in Isaiah 14, you know, he's saying that he'd ascend not above the clouds in the sky. He's saying, I will ascend above the cloud of the glory of God. I will be higher than that, which is why he follows that up with the statement, I will make myself like the Most High. I'll be above that glory. I'll be just like God. That's how Satan became Satan. He was made perfect and and beautiful, wise, good. And he had no idea what it would be like to go toe-to-toe against the Lord Almighty. He saw himself and saw splendor and majesty and thought, I am just as worthy as God is. And so he, he decided, I'm going to dethrone God. And his heart was filled with violence. He recruited a third of the angels. And in his conceit, he rebelled. And because of that, God cast him out. And Jesus saw it happen. You know, He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. 
he saw it happen. Now, how does this affect us? Right? If Satan is God's enemy and Satan opposes all that God is and cares about, then you know, as we've said, that Satan targets you to do that. Right? Satan is God's enemy. We saw exactly how he started off as God's enemy. We saw the whole origin story. And ever since that day when he fell from heaven, ever since that day, he has been on a mission to go against God. Right? He's, a, a, he's taken on all these different titles because of how he, he moves and attacks God's people. And he, he's, he's done it, he's, and he's gone into heaven, and he's had conversations with God, and he's, he's tried to, uh, you know, to, to mess with God's people and all that stuff and get permission from God to do that. And then after the cross of Jesus Christ, he was, just, he was kicked out. And now he's just stuck on the earth, and he's roaming the earth. I want to reiterate a certain point from here that we've talked about before, and it's simply this. Satan is not particularly interested in you as an individual. Satan is not interested in you as an individual. You are not special to him. He is not interested specifically in you. His target is God. He hates God. That's that's what you need to understand. You need to know his motive. He hates God. Satan hates God. You and I are incidental. We are collateral damage in a way. Attacking us is a means to his end. Satan wants to hurt God as severely as he can, and so he attacks God's people, God's disciples, God's children. He attacks us. Because he can't go into heaven, he can't mount an attack against heaven anymore. He's kicked out of heaven, he's roaming the earth, he can't. So all he's got is God's children. That's us. And so he attacks us. That's how he's attacking God. We are not the issue, but he will destroy us and he'll defeat us, not because he hates us, but because he hates God, whom we serve and represent and worship. So what you have to understand is that in this war, your victory and your defeat reflect directly on God. When Satan attacks us with deception, temptation, slander, accusation, control, when he he throws that kind of stuff at us, that's how he tries to attack God and hurt God. If he wins, in a sense, it's like he wins an attack against God. But if we stand against his attack and resist, then in a sense, he loses in his attempt to hurt God. That's why he targets God's people. And frankly, if you don't feel like Satan is attacking you in any particular area, if you can't uh, figure out where that's happening, either you're not paying attention well enough or he's not attacking you because you haven't been a threat to him because you haven't been actively glorifying the Lord. Satan attacks the church. He attacks the believer. He attacks the person who is out to give God glory because he hates God. And he attacks us in every area of our lives because he hates God, he wants to attack God, he wants to hurt God, and so he comes after God's children. But the reason why we talked about Satan's origin and, and how that is relevant for us is because of a very special aspect of his strategy. I think you would agree that the more you can bless God's people and the more you can glorify the Lord, the more of a target you'll become to the devil. If he hates God and he hates people worshiping God and he hates people loving and praising God, if he hates that, then he will stop 
or he will target and aim at the people who are the most effective in worshiping God and serving God and glorifying God. Now, who is positioned to bless God's people the most, resulting in many people glorifying the Lord? That would be the leaders of the church. Which is why Satan especially targets leaders. And when a leader falls, he makes it as public as he can. He owns the world. And he throws it up on the media and on the internet and on the, on the news everywhere he can. And it's interesting because uh, he, he targets the leaders of the church in such a way that he just, he just wants to see them fall and he wants to make a parade out of it. We see that even in, in the way that Jesus spoke to, uh, to one of his disciples. He, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples. Well, the guy that was in charge of the 12 disciples when Jesus is, is gone, the, you know, the next in command was Simon, Simon Peter, right? In Luke 22, verse 31, uh, here's what it says. It says, Simon, Simon, if we can get it up on the board, please. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Why would Satan target Simon, the leader of the 12 apostles? Why would he do that? He wanted to shake him. He wanted to sift him. He wanted to, uh, to reduce him from high up to down low. And he did that because he knew that, that Simon was positioned in such a way to, to glorify the Lord and teach others how to do it. A similar warning is given to all the church leaders, all the church overseers, elders, pastors, everyone who's in, in any position of authority in the church. They're given the same warning to be careful not to be puffed up. Look at verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to, to the office of overseer, which is church leader, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. He's mentioned twice here, the enemy. Satan is mentioned uh, as the, the devil in verse 6, and he's mentioned again as the devil in verse 7. There he is. To puff the leader up with conceit, if he can, so that he would be condemned, just like the devil was. Or to bring him to disgrace, just as the devil is. If you, if you think carefully about this, this is how Satan became God's enemy, Right? He loved his own wisdom, he loved his own beauty, he loved his own greatness, and his conceit led to his condemnation. Now, think this through, okay? The longer you, you journey in your faith, the more you, you, you are sanctified, the more you experience that transformation from sinfulness to holiness, right? That just, that's the natural outcome of you trusting in the Lord Right? Reading his word and, and, uh, and responding in prayer and obedience. Right? That's, that's naturally what happens. Your life just starts to transform. And the, the parts of you that were, that were so broken by flesh and devil and the world start to 
be strengthened and renewed and transformed into something completely different. And the more you, 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 you get sanctified, the more you journey on like this and are transformed, the more you grow in goodness and wisdom, the more you are perfected. And when you think about those words, those, those are descriptors that were true of Satan at his beginning. He was good. He was wise. He was perfect. But then consider this. Satan, in his perfect beauty and wisdom, in his perfect goodness where he was sealed with perfection, nothing else needed to be added, nothing else needed to be improved, in his perfection, Satan was filled with conceit. In his perfection, he fell in love with himself and thought that his glory was better than God's glory. If a perfect creature like Satan could fall into that, how much more can people who still struggle with sin like you and me fall into that? How much more can a person who's not yet perfect, who's not yet full of wisdom, how much more can a person who struggles with sin and constantly needs to confess and repent and be forgiven, how can such a person resist such a temptation? That invitation from conceit, that, that temptation to think that you are better than the people around you, or better than God himself, that, that urge to prioritize yourself above God most high, and to aim at, at accomplishing glory for yourself above the glory of God. It's there and it grows over time. When you first become a Christian, there's great excitement. Uh, you're on fire for the Lord is how it's, it's a lot of times described. And then as you, as you continue on, you find that there are seasons where things are, are wonderful and you're, you're passionate and you're zealous. And then there are seasons where you're apathetic, complacent, uninterested. And you kind of get into, into, uh, into thinking after, after years of this, you start to grow and you start to outgrow some of the bad habits and stuff. And so you start to get past all, you know, all the, uh, the wishy-washiness of your emotional responses to the, uh, to the faith and start to lay down solid values and, and, and principles and start to live by them. And you're not so thrown back and forth by just your emotional condition. And as that happens, it becomes really easy as you are a Christian, as you become a Christian for many years, you know, as you, as, you, as you progress that far in, to then look at the new believer and just think this person knows nothing, this person is less than me, that I am greater than him or her. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? Then it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, hey, like talk to people in church and build relationships, and you're on fire for that. And now, after being a Christian for many years, there are newcomers in the church. They could be in the same space as you are, and for hours you'll sit there and ignore them. How easy it is for us to be filled with conceit. Prioritize our comfort, 
our own glory, above our, our one purpose, which is to glorify the Lord. How much more so for the leaders of the church who are actually given authority. What a sober warning. The men who are given charge to watch over the flock of God and the people of God. What a dangerous position it is because you're a large target. To know that the devil is trying to get you to fall in love with yourself the way that he fell in love with himself. And that conceit and condemnation are a threat at your door every day. The leader of the church should be a leader in humility. That's the one way to combat against conceit. Humility, thankfulness, confession, they're all related to one another. The leader should have a positive reputation even with unbelievers, with outsiders. They should have a positive regard for him because of his humility. Or else Satan will use that pride to bring the leader to disgrace. It's a sober warning, a somber one even, something to look for in your church, whatever church you go to. Look at the leadership and ask yourself, is this a leadership that in my heart I can tell is either conceited or is this a leadership that is humble before the Lord? Weigh it in your heart. And if at all there's doubt about the humility of the leadership of that church, get out of there. Satan hates God. He will especially attack the leaders of the church to make them fall. And it's not just overseers. As you grow up in the faith, older men are to teach younger men. Does it not say that in Titus and 1 John? Older women are to teach younger women. Does it not say that? Just you being farther along in your journey puts you in a position of leadership. And when you're carrying out the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, are you not supposed to lead people to Christ? There's leadership that's entrusted to every believer. There's an opportunity for you to not just glorify God, but teach someone else to glorify God, to bless someone else, to cause them to give thanks and praise the Lord. The more you mature in the faith, the larger of a target you become as well. Do not think that this warning is just for those who are given a position at church. It's for anyone who can actually make an impact for God, who cares to make an impact for God. I'll show you this, this really obscure moment in Zechariah 3 where the prophet Zechariah has a vision of the high priest of Israel. The high priest in this vision, he's just, he's just representing the nation of Israel. But, you know, the, in the vision, he's, the nation of Israel is just depicted as the high priest. And Israel was defiled at this time, was wayward at this time. And here's what ha- happens in, in Zechariah 3, verse 1. It says, uh, Then God showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, O Satan. Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. There's the accuser in the vision right there in the courtroom ready to point out Israel's failures and unworthiness because that's what he does as an accuser. That's what he does. 
And the, the picture is him pointing to the high priest. He would do that to the high priest. That vision is not a, a false representation. That's what he would do, and that's what he would do to every leader in the church, no matter what position of leadership, no matter how big or small. He'll undoubtedly be a large contributor to how a person falls, and then when that person falls, he'll stand there and say, look, and he'll accuse, and he'll blame, and he'll point it out. How do we stand? How do we stand against the enemy? How do we stand against conceit? Satan was good and perfect and full of wisdom and beauty, and the glory of God filled him with conceit and led it, it led to his condemnation by his own doing, by his own choice. And it's the strategy of the enemy of God to make you take pride in your own strength, in your own greatness, in your own glory, just as he did. Do not fall into his snare. Do not fall into such disgrace. To state the obvious, the way to stand against conceit is humility and thankfulness and confession. Remember that faith that is not humble is self-righteousness. There is no such thing as faith that is not humble. Faith that is not humble is a disguise of self-righteousness. You're either in love with Jesus or you're in love with yourself. You're enamored by the glory of God or you're caught up with the glory of yourself. That'll determine which way you go. You'll either boast in the Lord or you'll boast in yourself. And we've got to choose, as it says at the end of 1 Corinthians 1. You'll glory in your own strength or you'll glory in the strength that Christ gives you. And we've got to choose, like it tells us in the middle of Philippians 4. The simple protection against conceit, as predictable as it sounds, is praying through what you know from God's word. That's it. That's humility, thankfulness, confession. That comes from just praying through God's word. Kneeling before the Lord, praising, worshiping him for who he is and what he's done. And here's the thing. It's not, it's not something you do just the day that you become a Christian. It's something that you must grow in doing over time. Because the more and more you grow in beauty and goodness and wisdom and splendor, the more you start to, to look like God and, and, and exude his glory, the more you do that, the larger the temptation to fall into conceit. The larger the, the chance to fall into condemnation. And so as you grow in faith, it's got to be a growing in prayer. It's got to be a growing in wielding the word of God prayerfully. That's how you hold to the faith with a good conscience. That's how you carry out the charge expected of every believer. That's how you wage the good warfare. That's how you reflect and display the glory of God. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we need you. God, we need you. We pray, Lord, that this church would be a church that never stops needing you, never stops knowing that we need you. Any strength or glory or greatness that we have is nothing but a reflection 
It is not from ourselves. We are mirrors. We do not give off light. We only reflect yours. That's our prayer. That we would be vessels to hold your glory because we have none for ourselves. God, we pray that that we as a church, as we mature, as we, as we are made perfect, that we would not fall in love with ourselves. That we would not start to subtly think that we are better than, than the younger believers, that we are better than anyone. Grow the humility of everyone in this church, Lord, in proportion to their faith. To remember every day that it's while we were sinners Christ died for us. And it's only by grace that we're saved. And it's not by our own works and certainly not by our own worth that we stand before you. We pray, God, that as we journey through our understanding of you, it would be made evident in our humility in our thankfulness, in our confession. That everyone who leads in this church would lead in those virtues. God, we pray that the greater we understand you, the greater we worship Christ for saving us because we needed saving. And the more we worship Christ even still because we still need saving every day. Be with this church, Lord, every believer as he or she journeys. Be with every leader. Protect us from conceit. Protect us from that snare, that trap. Protect us from condemnation. We pray, Lord, that our glory, our strength, our greatness would come not from ourselves, but from Christ and Christ alone. We pray all this for his glory and his name. Amen.